Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books and Political Science, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Susan Lee Bell at St. Joseph's University, and today I'm joined by Dr. Laura F. Edwards to discuss her book, The People and Their Peace, Legal Culture and the Transformation of Inequality in Post-Revolutionary in the Post... I'm going to do that again. Welcome back to New Books and Political Science, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Susan Lee Bell at St. Joseph's University, and today I'm joined by Dr. Laura F. Edwards to discuss her book, The People and Their Peace, Legal Culture and the Transformation of Inequality in the Post-Revolutionary South, published by the University of North Carolina Press in 2009. This is an award-winning book that the New Books Network did not cover when it came out, but it is now central to a new Supreme Court case in 2023 dealing with domestic violence and guns. And this book has been cited by the briefs. So I'm thrilled to be able to go back and, um, and talk to Dr. Edwards. Do individuals have the right to keep and bear arms? Do the people have any collective rights to public safety? Now that the United States Supreme Court requires each side to argue based on the history and tradition of 1791 and 1868, What do scholars tell us about legal practices and public understanding in those times? Dr. Laura F. Edwards argues that Americans in the South transformed their understanding of inequality during the half century following the Revolutionary War. Drawing on extensive archival research in North and South Carolina, Dr. Edwards outlines the changes in the legal system, highlighting the importance of localized legal practice. Edwards demonstrates how this intensely local legal system favored maintaining the peace, a concept intended to protect the social order and its patriarchal hierarchies. She shows how ordinary people, rather than legal professionals and political leaders, were central to its workings. People without rights, even those enslaved, quote, had influence within the system because of their positions of subordination, not in spite of them, close quotes. Her book documents how, by the 1830s, state leaders secured support for a more centralized system that excluded people who were not specifically granted individual rights, including women, African Americans, and the poor. The People and Their Peace concludes that the emphasis on rights affirmed and restructured. The People and Their Peace concludes that the emphasis on rights is not quite right, and that the way we need to think about this is the ways in which new life is given to these structures within state law and the extent to which it affected lots of Americans. Dr. Laura F. Edwards is the class of 1921, Bicentennial Professor in the History of American Law and Liberty at Princeton University, and the award-winning author of four books. Most recently, she wrote Only the Clothes on Their Back. Or is it the cloths on their back? The clothes on her back. Textiles, Law, and Commerce in the 19th Century United States, published by Oxford in 2022. I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Edwards to the New Books Network. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. So you wrote this book in 2009. It was published in 2009. You wrote it before then. But your research is currently being used by lawyers who are preparing documents for a case before the Supreme Court called United States versus Rahimi. And uh, in my last two podcasts, uh, the guests have, have from both public health and from legal scholarship have cited your book. So the and the people in its piece is cited in various briefs. Um, current federal law says that people with domestic violence restraining orders may be asked to turn over their firearms and ammunition. And the lawyers arguing in favor of these laws say that America's history of firearm regulation is fundamentally a history of regulating perceived dangerousness, um, perceived threats to the public peace by both groups and individuals. And they're talking a lot about the 18th century, which is the subject of your book. So I'd like to start off with just asking you about how you came at the time that you did to to studying the peace um, and this part of the country 
and and whether or not you were even thinking about firearms law as as you were approaching this uh, in in the time that you were researching the book. No, I wasn't thinking about firearms at all. In fact, when I was researching this book, um, as a Southern historian, very much defined as a Southern historian at that time, I've since sort of moved out of that field. Um, I was very interested in slavery and the development of slavery. I'm also interested in poor people, their relationship to law, and also women and their relationship to law. So essentially, I'm interested in marginalized people. And I really wanted to write a history of, of actually a political history of their involvement in government in a period where they didn't have rights. Right? So the way that I did that was looking at the law instead of um, government institutions where you vote or you're participating or you're influencing legislation at the state level. So I was looking at law, but then also looking at local institutions, local courts, uh, because that's where you have this abundant evidence of all these people who bring all kinds of cases to local officials. And these courts are actually have been very understudied in the literature. And it, at that point, it was also very much dismissed. This was a really difficult book to write, actually, um, because I would say, I'm looking at local courts and everybody would say, well, why are you doing that? That's like so unimportant. Um, but I persisted. And so like, even figuring out what local courts are um, was difficult, given the sources, and trying to explain this to people and why this is important. So this is where I was looking for the, this is where I was looking for the people I was interested in. And then ultimately it became a history of legal institutions because I had to explain and find a way to explain to people why this was important. So um, that's what led me to the topic. I was interested in the people, inequality, their ways of influencing governance generally. Um, but then recently it has become important again because it outlines and uncovers this history of regulation that is otherwise really difficult to see. So you mentioned abundant evidence, and, and in reading the book, that is so clear. It is clear this is a book that took a long time to write, and it's also a book in which you can almost smell the sources. They are micro, and some of them are crumbling, and some of them are incomplete. And you're very careful to point out that unlike something like the notes to the federal convention in which they're all in a particular format and, and they all happen among fairly similarly educated people, your book is, is looking at local officials who actually are not similarly situated or educated uh, and, and, the, and the people in the courts are also quite different. So tell us a little bit about what these resources actually look like. What, what are you going through? Where were they? And how complete is the record? So it's a good question. And it is kind of central to the way that the book is written, but also central to understanding how the legal system worked at this point in time. Because we are so accustomed today in terms of thinking of like appellate decisions where a judge writes down the logic and then you you put it in a published book or you put it online. Um, the law is then laid out by a judge and then we all follow it. And we also assume that law is top down. So it comes from the federal government or comes from state government. And then local jurisdictions follow what the states tell them to do. This is not how things worked in the late 18th century. There is this presumption that, in fact, things that are related to the public order should be located and should be governed in local areas. Because local areas are really different. You know, if you go to the coast and you have a town there, it's different than a town inland. If you have a town that's settled largely by people of French descent, that's going to be different from one settled by people from Scotland. Um, if you have someplace, you know, to the West, it's different than the East. I mean, the idea that somebody someplace hundreds of miles away would be able to determine what was appropriate and what was done in particular local areas was very foreign to folks in the late 18th century and the early 19th century too. Um, so this idea of a universal law that would apply uniformly across this broad area of a state, people are really not on board with that. They're okay with the concept, but they're like, okay, you can have your state laws, but we also have other bodies of law, not all of which are written, which we've been following for decades and sometimes centuries, 
which we also use as well. So you have a mix of law out there, some of it unwritten, that is modifying sometimes used alongside state laws, but a lot of the discretion is left to local officials. And because these local officials, not all of whom are elected, but Many of which they, many of whom live in the communities where they're working, they know all these people. Local officials are not formally trained necessarily in law. They're operating in this sort of broad area of common law, meaning what is commonly done in your area and what is commonly assumed to be binding legal principles. So this also means that practice is really important. And this then in turn means that a whole range of local people are actually making law through daily practices. One of the examples that I like to use is there's this one case of a woman who has a flock of ducks and the ducks are stolen by, or some of the ducks are stolen by another woman. And then another woman becomes involved too. Now they're married women, right? They they, technically by the laws of coverture, um, which suspend married women's rights in marriage, um, they, they can't own ducks, right? But the case proceeds with the presumption that this woman who has a flock of ducks actually owns the ducks because the ducks are hers and everybody knows the ducks are hers. And so we're going to proceed with that assumption, even though there is another legal principle out there that would suggest that that's impossible. So because she owns them, because other people recognize that she owns them, she can make that legally enforceable through her actions. And so custom is really important here. And I was completely fascinated by the ways that ordinary people, in fact, can make law and are legally empowered in ways that we have since forgotten. And in fact, we are far less legally empowered than they are because of the institutional structure at the time. That's fascinating. And uh, two things sort of popped to mind. In interviewing some people recently about firearms law, they say, actually, whatever's on the books in the 1994 federal laws is not what happens locally. That in fact, in Philadelphia, sometimes people take guns away from people who are under domestic restraining orders, but not always. So there's not as much difference between the 18th century and the 21st century as as we might imagine. So this is sort of one thing that this is actually still quite relevant, that the people who enforce the law uh, also are making law as as well. And secondly, I, I love what you said about the universality when you read Supreme Court opinions, there is a and a lot of scholarship. No, I I I'm a political theorist, not a historian, so I tend to read things that have more of this, you know, the big universal theory. People will say, well, this is what Blackstone says about coverture. So that is what coverture is in the period. Yet, as you show so deftly in the book, that that's not what's happening. Everyone knows the woman owns the ducks, whether or not it's really her husband. He's not in court and he's not making the claim and people are listening to her. And that is one of the, thank you for writing the book. It's such a, a it's such a easy to read yet incredibly rich and nuanced historical narrative. And that's kind of hard to do both um, sometimes at the same time. Uh, so thank you for that. And and I think that uh, in terms of the Supreme Court, you know, focusing on people like Blackstone, he cited a whole lot more than uh, stories about local courts and women with ducks. Yet the new questions about... Um, uh, well, well, we'll talk about the new questions about history and tradition in a little while. So let me let me kind of just drill down a little bit more on the book. So you began by thinking about these marginalized peoples, but where you ended up with the focus is on their piece, uh, them sort of as more collective. So can you explain a little bit about what it is that the people's piece is and how it is that you sort of found it out because you weren't looking for it. You didn't come into the project with this on your mind. It appears to have emerged through the research. Yeah, it really did emerge through the research. I had no idea about legal institutions um, and no interest actually in institutional history. I mean, at that point in my life, if you had said, oh, you're doing it, let's do an institutional history of the law, I would have run from the room, like screaming. Um, I, I really am interested in people inequality, people's interactions. I'm interested, I was really trained as a social historian, not initially a legal historian. But as I was working through all of these cases, um, 
I at first I what I would do is I would go look for there must be a law someplace on the books in some law library. So I would go look at statute collections. I would look at appellate decisions. I spent actually a couple of years doing this, and like for instance, somebody would be charged with a misdemeanor. So I, let's look at the law on this misdemeanor. It wouldn't be there, and this like provoked a huge crisis because I thought I was doing something wrong, right? So you look in the statute books and there's nothing on this. And yet they're still doing this at the local level. It's like, so I don't understand how this works. Um, And I was too scared to ask anybody because it seemed like it was my fault, not, you know, I couldn't figure out what was going on. And then ultimately what I did piecing together the evidence is I realized that this is a result of the institutional structure of the time. So states, when they're formed in the post-revolutionary period, purposely give over wide discretion to local areas over a wide range of issues dealing with the public order, with that presumption that those issues are best dealt with at the local level. And in fact, they're following colonial tradition here, um, and early modern tradition more generally. But it also accords with revolutionary ideology, too, of putting law with the people, right? So if you read state constitutions, they're very clear about this. Um, so matters involving the state and the state's interests reside with the state. But a lot of them will say broadly, and North Carolina is one of those places, that matters that 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 actually the police powers, which are about this broad writ of authority over public matters, that belongs with the people. And by the people, they mean literally the people in local communities, because local jurisdictions are the place where the people have access to the law. So I had to kind of piece together that larger institutional structure, which once you see it, it's like, oh, that's why there are no statutes on this whole range of issues, because it was done on a case-by-case basis through the discretion of local officials in local jurisdictions. And it was done not through a statute, but through common law in that broad sense, both practice, local conceptions of what constituted good order, um, and then also um, you know, common law principles some of which are written down, but not all of which are. So I had to figure out the process and the institutional structure in order to figure out what was actually happening in in the cases themselves. And then it also became sort of an explanatory challenge, right? Because the piece is not, it's both a universal and it's a particular. So it's a universal concept, but the way that it is defined in any given place is going to be different. And it's different because local customs, local expectations are different in different places. And this is not something that is actually peaceful. It's like, it's called the peace, which means that you're supposed to uphold good order. But this also means upholding the inequalities and the forms of subordination of the time. So like the peace is about upholding slavery in the South. It's about upholding class structure that is very pretty rigid. Um, But what is fascinating here. Well, it's also about upholding patriarchy in the sense of subordination of married women, but all women too, um, white, black, whatever the race. Um, but at the same time, the presumption is that everybody's included and is part of this. So it's kind of a good news, bad news situation. It's like the bad news is you're included, but the good news is you're included. And because you're part of this, this whole system relies on you, like people's, their information, um, their relationships with other people, their ways into the system um, for subordinated people that I found really surprising. And a lot of the cases are really surprising too, because you don't expect them to be there. And I want to talk about some of those cases. It's part of the book that really intrigued me. But before we do, uh, I I love the way you rephrased uh, this incredibly complex idea, which is that on the one hand, there is something there. There is this general idea about the peace. On the other hand, it doesn't look the same in every situation. And there isn't a statute book that has this outlined with, you know, 16 components of the piece. But in the book, you, you do 
uh, draw out some of the general trends of what people meant by good order and the kinds of rules that they developed. And, and this is important today in this case, because the question is, you know, can Congress make rules about domestic violence or is that somehow an invasion of somebody's individual right? And so I, I think what you've written here, which in some ways, we're very lucky you weren't thinking about the Second Amendment. A lot of scholarship on the Second Amendment has fallen apart on both sides. Their data has fallen apart in part because it was partisan to begin with. People were looking to build a particular case for a particular idea. What's interesting about your book is that it's it's written at a time in which you're not thinking about this. And now people are going back to it to look for it as an example. But in, in, in general, is there something that we can say, even though it was local, that people tended to think about good order and, and a couple of examples of, of things that they would do? Sure. You know, primarily here, the idea of the piece, the idea of a good public order, it's about a collective. It's not about individual rights. And this is really important. So that, you know, like the authority, let me take domestic violence as an example, because it has such resonance now with Rahimi. Um, there are domestic violence cases all running all through these records. And I'm looking at the rural South. I'm looking at North Carolina and South Carolina. These are the places that I would assume most of us would believe that like, if we're going to prosecute domestic violence, it wouldn't have been done there. But it was routinely. And you know, I was first a little shocked by this. It's like, well, how can you do this? Because technically, because of Coberter, if you read Blackstone, who I can say more about, but Blackstone is not actually operative law when it comes to Coberture in this period, despite what people say now. But they look to Blackstone and Coberture, and Coberture then suspends the legal persona of a wife, actually not suspends it, but subordinates it under her husband. So she can't under coverture, own property, your own name, or do any of the legal uh, business necessary to maintain exchange property, right? So she can't file a case in her own name. She can't prosecute in her own name. She can't make a contract. Um, she can't do any of those things, right? So She can't make a will. She doesn't have control over guardianship of her children. If she does have property that comes from her family, that also is her right is subordinated to control it. It's, it's huge in this period right after in the 50 years after the revolution. And it's not only that she loses, her husband gains. So her husband gains authority and power over her. And people have taken that to mean that husbands had the right, and it's actually declared, and Blackstone says this, and so do other common law treatises, that, that husbands acquire the right to discipline their wives. Now, I think it's really interesting that we immediately now go assume that discipline means physical violence. Um, and actually, there are limits. And, you know, even Blackstone says that no, this doesn't include physical violence. Um, we're kind of hung up on that. They're saying that because as an afterthought saying, of course, it doesn't include physical violence, because this is a legal concept. It's like he has the obligation to discipline her because he is also legally responsible for her. But discipline does not necessarily mean physical abuse. And actually, it does doesn't mean physical abuse. And so when a wife is either physically abused or threatened even, she can go to a local justice of the peace and make a complaint. So how does she make a case if she has no legal persona, people ask. It's like, if you make a complaint, you're saying that what happened to me is not a violation of my body, it's a violation of the public body. And so it's not offense against me as a legally you know, identified person with a set of rights. It is a violation against us all, everybody in the community, because it disrupts the public order. Actually, fair, and then the case goes forward as an offense against the public order, not against the woman herself. Um, so the justice then hears the complaint and he says, okay, if it's actual violence that has happened, he can decide to charge the husband with assault or fray or attempted murder or whatever. Um, and if it's just a threat, he can charge him with an offense against the peace. And the offense against the peace then requires he's brought in, he's arrested, he's brought in, and he has to post a bond. Now, a bond is not a get-out-of-jail-free card. Bond means you have to bring in sureties, people who will pay the bond, and they are then charged with making sure that he does not offend the peace in any way, shape, or form 
again. And if they do, if he does, those sureties lose their money, which this is a, a way of monitoring in the 18th century that is kind of akin to what, you know, ankle bracelet today, I guess. Um, it's it's a real serious you know, restriction in terms of personal liberty. Um, and those people then actually are on you all the time. And oftentimes, if there is some sort of problem here, um, if there's class differences between these folks, you know, the person who is forced to put up the peace bond often finds himself working for the people who did. So this is a system that is, um, people take it very seriously. And it's not like you just pay money and get to go do what you want. If they can't post sureties, they're jailed. So I think of this, and I was trying to explain this to somebody recently, and again, our contemporary conceptions, I think, get in the way of understanding how people in the 18th century are thinking, but they're trying to disarm a person in the very broad sense of the term. If you look in the OED, the Oxford English Dictionary, in the archaic terms, to disarm means to disempower. So they're trying to cut off the person's power, diffuse the bad behavior, and make sure it doesn't happen again to maintain order and good harmony in the community. And when it comes to domestic violence, people are really serious about this because marriage is a foundational institution in this society. And you can't have husbands, can't hand over power to somebody and then have them use that to terrorize people that they are actually charged with protecting. That would undermine the institution in a way that would be way more problematic than allowing a husband to beat his wife. Now, having said that, there are all sorts of instances too where, in fact, husbands do beat their wives and they're not always prosecuted. But there are also countervailing social forces out there that are about, you know, husbands' authority over their wives. Um, so husbands do, in fact, you know, exert their authority in that way, and they're not always checked. But given those countervailing forces and the, the sort of rampant misogyny in the culture as a whole, the fact that you have these cases at all is very suggestive of the power of law and also the power of this idea of public order, right? Um, and that women have such authority that they can walk into a justice's house and say, I'm scared of my husband. And on her word alone, they will bring in the man and arrest him and jail him if he can't come up with appropriate bond. To me, that's pretty incredible for the late 18th century and also speaks to this understanding of a collective order. The power of a husband is not his individual right that is protected and shielded because it is a right. He exercises power only in the interests of the public order. And so if he abuses his authority, it's the responsibility of us all in that period to step in and check it. So patriarchy isn't an end in itself. It's, it's not in any Anglo-liberalism. What it is is the, the, the idea is to create political and social stability. The patriarchal family is seen as a unit in that establishment. And up until that point, it's considered legitimate. But when it no longer can promise the, 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 the public order, the common good, then it becomes a problem and it's actually dealt with in the courts. It is fascinating that people can walk in and say this happened and not have to testify, especially given how much is written about how disempowered women were in courts and they couldn't sit on juries. And it takes in the United States until well into the 19th and early 20th century for women to even be lawyers in many states that we see this so early after the revolution. And the, again, the examples you give in the book are just great. You can kind of feel people walking in uh, and asking for these things. There's a uh, an earlier federal uh, decision on Rahimi in which Judge Ho talks about women and how they make accusations false accusations. Uh, it's really a dog whistle opinion about how untrustworthy women are and that they use restraining orders, domestic violence restraining orders as, as, as bargaining chips and divorces. And that's really what they're up to. And it's a kind of a horror. It's not kind of, it is a horrifying decision. It's very hard to actually read it. Uh, and it's a fascinating contrast to what you're describing in this earlier time in which the presumption is, okay, we're going to believe this person. And it, and as you describe in the book, this a lot of this has to do with local reputation. 
People walk in and they're not strangers to this person. They are known to be trustworthy or to, you know, to, to be people of the community. Um, let me ask you one question. I, one of the things about coverture that's often written about has to do with sexual access and uh, the fact that the common law really doesn't think about marital rape because it assumes that husbands have this right. Do, do we see anything involving sexual violence uh, in that way in this period as you were looking through the records? You know, it's it can be hard sometimes to parse and categorize these acts in the way that we do now. So, and I think this is part of what happened subsequently with the process where we've moved the legal process, where a lot of this was then moved to the state. It's systematized and we start breaking down categories of crime and describing, you know, specific acts and then allotting certain kinds of, you know, evidentiary requirements and disciplinary, you know, punishments to all of these different kinds of acts. So if you look, you know, in the criminal code, now it goes on for pages and pages and pages. If you look in the 19th century, it's like a handful of pages, right? Um, so generally, you often can't tell what happened. So, you know, there's a whole range of violent acts that are prosecuted under these generic terms. So you have assault, you have a fray, you have riots, you have breaches of the peace. But you don't always know what happened. And people aren't always as open about sexual activity, although when they are, they are pretty, pretty explicit. Um, but it could be hard to tell. And my sense is that, you know, some sexually, what we would call sexual acts today, are just sort of lumped under assault. That actually is interesting, though, because the general description makes it easier to prosecute. Prosecuting rape, rape is a statutory offense that requires certain kinds of evidence and is really difficult for women to provide. And it's the same thing later, too, with other kinds of you know, offenses that are sexual in nature that get categorized as crimes. If it's just assault, like he hurt me, then it's much easier to prove. And it's this is a really hard thing also to explain now because we're so used to wanting to categorize things and also wanting to be an offense against a person, individual, a violation of rights. But if you say, look, I'm scared, and people say, that's actually a problem for us all, you've taken somebody who has a marginal position who is not going necessarily going to be believed if you have to put them on the stand and have them make their case as an individual, as an offense against them, it's probably going to fail, especially for women in this period. But if you turn it into a public offense, then it takes the pressure off of her and turns it into something that is an offense against all of us. And all of a sudden, the requirements and her, uh, you know, position, her powerlessness actually become diffused by her connection to the larger public order. So it's kind of interesting to me. And I think it has real lessons for the way that we see these things today, because there's certainly a lot of literature out there that suggests that it's very difficult for women to prosecute uh, rape cases, it's very difficult for them to prosecute cases against their husbands. They certainly feel incredibly intimidated in domestic violence cases. Um, if you put a powerless individual against a powerful individual, then this is an asymmetry in the law that makes it really difficult for the powerless person to act. And what this sort of framework from the late 18th century does is, is give powerless people a little more power by connecting them to the public order. And by also, I think, making a statement publicly. It's like, well, gosh, in the 18th century, it's just really not okay to beat your wife. We don't think that's okay. Um, and so if you do that, we're going to come after you because it's just not okay. It relieves the individual from having to shoulder all of the burden of the prosecution. So I don't know. To me, there's like, there's downsides to this too, um, obviously, because you know one of the things they also thought was really important in upholding was slavery. But should give us pause, right? Um, you need to be careful how you're defining the public order. But in terms of kind of legal forms and process, I think there's something to be said for understanding power relations and dynamics within the legal system and the ways that this diffused some of that and gave people without power more power because it connected them to the public order and 
that was more powerful. So, no, it's fascinating. I mean, uh, two quick things. One, really early in the common law in England, you have this notion that homicide actually isn't. It isn't an offense against that individual. It's an offense against the king. It's it's you took his body, and there is no such thing as kind of like excusing that. You're, the king is in a sense excusing the offense against the realm. He's representative of the realm, and you can really see the long roots of what you're talking about here in North and South Carolina. Um, and, and secondly, I, I love what you said at the end there. Look, local justice, local judgment of what is not okay has flaws. And sometimes it really can work to the advantage of marginalized people, and sometimes it can work against them. You, you said earlier, way earlier, that you know what really drew you into this project was thinking about the wives, the children, the servants, the enslaved people, all of the people who were subordinated to this head of household, as well as free Blacks who were living in um, South and North Carolina, un unmarried free women, uh, poor white people, uh, all sorts of people whose uh, class or gender or race, you know, marked them as, as subordinate in this society. Can you talk a little bit more about how this cut the other way when it came to enslavement and how this kind of local justice both deprived people of rights and also cases in which it opened up some possibility for rights? Yeah, yeah. Well, and none of this is actually about rights, right? So this, oh, sorry. Yeah. You're yeah. right. You're right. I um, and it's really hard because our language now, I mean, if you if you want government to act on your behalf, we say that it's a right. It's, it's the language we use for any kind of expectation of government intervention and support for basically what we want, right? Um, but in that period, actually, it's just People don't use rights in that way. Um, there's a very robust political discourse about rights, but there was one point when I went through, and I have thousands of these cases, I went through my database and I searched for right. And right came up in three different sort of capacities. One was right and wrong. So somebody did right because they didn't do wrong. There's right and left. And then if it's an intensifier, which is a very Southern thing. So you could be right smart. Right. But nobody walks into these cases talking about their rights. They walk in talking about what is an appropriate value for our society and community. Right. Now, to get to your point about enslaved people, and this also is the case for poor women, white and black, poor men, white and black, too. There's a real hierarchy in these communities. And this is not just in the South. This is this is the way actually the system operates all across the United States. And there's, you know, a hierarchy of belief. Um, there is not the presumption, as with rights, that we're all equal and have the same rights. To the contrary, you're part of a community, and the community is about a hierarchy. Um, and it's also about subordinating your interests to the larger whole, which can I just point out that actually that's what community is generally about? You don't get to have a community and then have everybody do just everything that they want to do personally because that's when a community falls apart. There are always kinds of rules here. So, you know, in any community, there are rules and expectations of behavior. The rules and expectations of behavior in the late 18th century are not something I would ever want to go back to, right? Um, so part of this is upholding, you know, the rigid inequalities of slavery. And so when enslaved people come and make a complaint, their words, their complaints, their interests don't matter as much. It's much more difficult for them to turn something that happened to them into an offense against the public order. Um, and the way that they do it when they do do it is through their community relations, right? So um, this to me was also an interesting way to understand slavery and certainly at odds with a lot of the literature now. But enslaved people were in these local communities still largely known individuals, right? So some enslaved people had more credibility in the words of the time than others. Um, some also had really strong connections to, you know, very powerful people in the community. And so those people are able to kind of turn those relationships into legal power. Other enslaved people don't and can't. And even then, it's really difficult for enslaved people to 
basically, you know, maneuver within this public order, although they do their best to try. And in the long term, I found this really interesting because even when they fail, even when this public order is very much, you know, arrayed against them and trying all of the dynamics are upholding slavery and their subordination, once we hit emancipation, enslaved people who are no longer enslaved expect the public order to actually represent their interests now. And they very much involve themselves in these local processes, which they know about because they've been watching them and experiencing them all their lives. They really expect that they're going to be able to remake the now post-emancipation South into a public order that does recognize their interests. So even though this is not working, they still understand the logic of this and they appreciate that and they have expectations, which I find to be incredible and surprising that ultimately they would and should be able to actually shape this public order. And really from the uh, 18th century on, you see small examples of this articulated. Uh, According to the social contract, we would also be given this promise of protection. We are part of the public, the people who would get this. You know, you see it over and over even before, uh, uh, before the war settles it and before emancipation. Um, so one elephant in the room with this book and why I'm talking to you right now is that everybody is citing you. And part of why everyone is citing you at the Supreme Court has to do with the fact that the Supreme Court has radically changed how justices interpret the Constitution. Uh, For over 200 years, justices looked at the words of the document, uh, the statutes. They looked at how the words fit into the logic of the rest of the Constitution. Sometimes they looked at congressional records that might shed light on intent. They looked at a lot of sources. But in the 1980s, we see a radical new way of interpreting the text gaining some momentum. Not much. It's still quite outlying. Uh, And we end up now in 2023 with a Supreme Court that is mostly filled with what is called originalists that require justices who are not trained as historians to examine the history and tradition of the U.S., specifically What was it like in 1791 at the time of ratification? And what was it like at 1861 as the post-Civil War reconstruction of the Constitution is happening through the 13th, the 14th, and the 15th Amendments? As I read your book, it, it just, again, I know you weren't writing it to answer these questions, but it really seems a reproach of the methods that are currently being used by the justices. You specifically say that dictionaries don't always work. You have to look at word usage. You're measuring public understandings, but you're looking in at these very micro records that really show what people were saying. You're, you're not looking to the treatises. So I, I guess I'm wondering what you think of originalism. Um, I, and again, not to put you on the spot, but all of a sudden historians are on the spot. Uh, people who do go through these crumbling sources, people who are very conscious, and you say this in the book, about what is missing, that we don't have information mostly about marginalized people. You have to go hunting the way you did, and you have to hunt for a very long time to find out what white women and what poor whites and what enslaved people were asking for uh, in 1791. So I'm wondering what you think of this entire enterprise of people now grabbing your book, reading it, and saying, this is how we're going to decide whether we can have domestic restraining orders in the United States include taking a gun or ammunition away from somebody who has been found to be a danger to the people. Right. So this this is a good question. And this gets me back to my initial difficulties in writing this book with other historians who are legal historians, because legal historians at that point, although I think it's very different now, actually, but at that point, you know, the, to do legal history, you do certain states, actually New York, perhaps Illinois, maybe Massachusetts. Um, You don't do the South because that's not representative. And then the other issue was that you look at, you know, statutes and appellate decisions. And so you're looking at state level produced, you know, evidence of law. 
if you look there, and this is essentially what is still done in legal circles, and I can give you a story about that after I finish this that is kind of funny. Um, but you know, if you read the briefs and you read the decisions, the presumption, especially with the guns right now, and the presumption with domestic violence too, is that because there is not a statute about it, therefore it was left to individuals complete discretion of individuals to do whatever they wanted. So you're looking for statutes, which is essentially what the historiography and legal historians were doing, you know, more when I was writing the book, right? But what I was doing was I was reconstructing both the institutional structure and then also looking at the production of law in this other area where people hadn't looked. And so the institutional structure is really important, right? Because you gave the example before that, oh, well, still, you know, local practice doesn't abide and, you know, accord with what is sometimes state or federal law. To be sure, it's supposed to now. Then it wasn't supposed to. This is the key point. The institutional structure was different. So there was no expectation that there was a state law that you followed because it's not the state's business to deal with things like domestic violence or disruptive individuals who are waving guns around. That's not the state's business. That's a local business. So institutionally, it is rooted in local law, which is not written down. You have to look at practice. And so to understand what was regulated, you need to go through hundreds and hundreds of cases to understand the process. And there's no single case that will say, here's what we do about guns. You have to actually look at the who's arrested, under what circumstances, what the outcome is, and then figure out from that what they're doing. Because all of this, the law itself is not written down, right? You're seeing the shadow evidence of how they're handling it. And so you're piecing together the assumptions to the practice, right? This takes years. I mean, you were saying the resources here, the sources I was using, I was fortunate that the this resources that the sources I was using were in state archives. So I could go to a single place that had air conditioning, heat, and chairs, and a table, and a plug to put my computer. Um, and then I, but there are hundreds of boxes of these things. And so, and maybe you can go through one or two a day, but that's like days and days and days. It took me years to do the research for this book. And there was only like a few counties in two states, right? Um, so it's the practice part. But if you go on Westlaw or LexisNexis and you type this stuff in, you're not going to get anything. And so... In the legal community now, the presumption is, and especially amongst originalists, if there's nothing there, then it was left to the discretion of individuals because there's nothing there. But my book says is that there's a lot there. It's just not in the places where these people are looking. So if you look for a statute, you would think that the late 18th century was a libertarian utopia. If you know anything about the late 18th century, you would know that people then take a very dim view of antisocial behavior and that everything was really highly regulated. But it's done in this other way, right? And this is sort of a view of the law that is increasingly legible to historians, but still illegible in the legal community. And I have a foot in both worlds now. And so I find this really interesting because I can understand, like, when to give you the example, um, I when we were writing one of the historian's briefs for Rahimi, I said, I can give you a list of cases. And this involved this question of whether people were disarmed, right? And they said, well, did they take away their firearms? And I said, no, they put them in jail and you can't bring your gun to jail. So that is, you know, by implication, disarming somebody, right? Um, in fact, there's an interesting case that doesn't appear in the book where I dug it up when I was doing some of this research. And one of the people who was jailed got extra time because he was playing his violin too loud. So, you know, <laughs> and the jailer's wife complained. Now, this tells you something about what jails look like at the time. Um, but it also suggests that I don't think the jailer's wife would have been thrilled if he had a gun, right? I mean, generally, you don't bring your gun to jail. So this is about disarming somebody, um, not in the way that we do today, but in the way that they did then, right? So I said, I can give you, they said, we don't have any evidence that people were disarmed. So I said, well, I have all these cases where they go to jail, where they couldn't bring their gun. Does that work? Well, that's good, but we can't cite it. I'm like, why? And they're like, it's in an archive. 
for a historian, this is the gold standard, an archive, right? It's like, I can't give you better evidence than this. But in the legal community, this is not evidence at all, because it is not published and it's not available widely on people's computers. So instead, I had to write a piece that described the cases, and then we could cite that in the blog. But we couldn't cite the cases themselves. And this is just an amazing disconnect in a period where purportedly we're interested in originalism, the way things actually worked, but given the way that, in fact, the legal profession works right now, there's no way to bring the evidence of that time period that was actually the most important evidence of regulation into the system. So it's kind of daunting, interesting, and puzzling. And my sense is probably for originalists, they're making an argument. They're not actually interested in history. They're making an argument. And they're imagining a history where they can project their desires. And I suspect we're going to hear less about history when they realize that, in fact, it's a much more fulsome, uh, hostile place to their interests than what they imagined. Yeah, I would say I'm even more cynical than you are. I think originalism is about cherry picking history. It's actually not a historical enterprise at all. What it is is a backfill. So you decide on your position. If you read Heller, uh, uh, Scalia's opinion in Heller as a historian, or even as I am like a political theorist, it's shocking. It, it, it doesn't even pass the qualifications of a student paper. Uh, he gives one case, but it's a state case, then the next time state cases don't count. He redefines what counts as the period. It's it's just shifting, and it is simply using history as if it is window dressing. It's not in any way taking account of, for example, earlier you were talking about the linguistics of well, what does the word right mean? How do people actually use it? And uh, linguists have done this with keep and bear arms. It doesn't mean what people said says it does. And I and I don't think originalism is what it claims to be, a point of neutrality that will allow us to remove the judge's judgment and the judge's personal ideas. Instead, what it is, is a new way of even uh, shoring up the ability of judges to be highly ideological and then to present quote unquote history as the evidence. And, and I think your point about how the law review system works and how citations work and what can be brought to the Supreme Court is brilliant. Because in fact, yes, nothing exists until you can search it in a legal database. And this is not about documents. You can't actually write an amicus brief and attach the, the, the scanned documents and underlined things where it shows how people behaved, you have to have a law review article about those documents. And those law review articles, not to put them down in any way, some of my best friends and some of the biggest friends of this podcast are these legal historians. But the peer review for law journals is very, very different at different institutions. And this is not actually how peer review works in history or in political theory, in which things are sent to people in your field without your name on it and get judged and corrected. That is not how this system works. Um, okay, we've talked about so many things. This is such a rich book. Uh, but before we have to end, is there something that we haven't talked about in this book that was really, really important to you um, and that you're hoping, you know, readers, because I think people are going to pick up this book now, it's so relevant, that readers will focus on? You know, one of the things that I found really fascinating in this book is the, and then I think holds lessons for us today. Like I said, I don't want to go back to the late 18th century. Um, so that piece of originalism, I also find really like weird. It's like, who wants to do that? They don't have flush toilets. I mean, I don't understand. So, um, and they're dealing with different issues and situations. But, you know, for me, as a legal historian, as a historian, first and foremost, I'm really interested in like, the respect for the people who lived back then. Um, and 
to me, you know, looking at this wide range of sources and understanding these people and what they were doing and appreciating the ways that they're maneuvering around the law, to me, that's really important. Um, and the lesson there is not so much that the outcomes of what they did are what we need to do, but the process and the understanding of the law is actually, I find, much more empowering and fulsome than today. So like I said, this is about practice and the ways that people could make law by making custom, which means that because you're doing it, you can push these assertions forward in your community, they become legally enforceable. And with domestic violence, um, I find this particularly, I don't know, heartening, but disturbing now, right? So I was sitting in conferences and I was listening to other people talk about domestic violence and I was sitting through lots of email exchanges. And the argument was, until the 1970s, domestic violence was legally acceptable in the United States, which means by implication that married women were okay with getting beaten until 1970 that somehow they didn't do anything about it, that that was fine. And that everybody else was fine with it. Their parents, their loved ones, their sisters, their brothers, their neighbors, their friends, whatever. It's good in America. We beat women, whatever. This is so disrespectful to people, particularly women, who never like to get beaten and who in the late 18th century through the 19th century found all sorts of ways to use the legal system in order to place limits on the legal authority of their husbands, right? And other people as well. So to me, that's the lesson, right? Um, that we need to be respectful of the way that people have used law. And the other piece of this is that the way the legal system was set up, if you understand the entire legal system, it's not just top down, as I said, it's also bottom up. Um, but it's about flexibility. So the idea of maintaining the peace is that you can use it flexibly to deal with problems as they arise. So you don't have a law that says you can't run around town waving your gun and like pointing it at people. When somebody does that, you can call that an offense against the peace and take him and put him in jail and take his gun away too. Um, because it's obvious that that's an ongoing, a new threat that you hadn't anticipated. And yet that also fights with the presumptions now about originalism, that somehow the written law itself, sort of this codified thing, would be able to deal with all of the, you know, problems in society then, let alone now. They didn't think it could deal with all the problems in society then. So why do we possibly on earth think that it's going to be able to handle and address all the issues now, which are very different? I think people in the late 18th century would be laughing at us because they certainly never saw the law that way. Um, and their relationship to the law was much closer um, and so I also think that's another piece of the American past that would be nice to resuscitate, too. Well, it's kind of great, Laura, that you started this project with an eye to the marginalized and actually where you are uh, over a decade after it's been published is an understanding about how it is that culture and expectations shape our rights today and how we talk about empowering right now, especially uh, within the context of the Second Amendment, as an individual person owning a weapon, that, that that is empowering of citizenship. But the focus on domestic violence, in which really guns in the home are, mean that uh, women's deaths and harm is more likely, is disempowering. And the question is, what does, and I love the way you put it, the process of lawmaking, the process of bringing a case, how does it become humiliating instead of empowering? And what does that mean about where we are in terms of marginalized people and in terms of who counts as a person in the law? So it's, it's really interesting. You ended up writing a book, which is what you wanted to write about marginalized people, but now it has this other layer that, I mean, this case that's coming is is shocking in so many ways. And it really does challenge the entire enterprise. Do we make law to be make people safer? 
do do we account for everyone's safety or do we only account for some people's safety? Yep. No, and it's also a question to me too about, well, like an individual who wants to do something, right? Are we so focused on individuals and one person's desire to own guns is going to then undermine the safety of everybody else? I mean, there is in fact more than just a rights-based tradition in our country, which does emphasize individual rights, but then pits my right to own a gun against your right to public safety or your right to safety, right? Maybe that's not the right legal framework here. Maybe the right legal framework is a larger sense of communal order where we're all entitled to a certain amount of safety, um, an expectation of safety. And that too is part of the American tradition. And I think that we've undersold that in the recent, in the past half century rights revolution period. We've abandoned that piece in favor of individual rights. And I think for good reason, in given the issues on civil rights, women's rights, um, all sorts of issues there. Um, but there's still this sort of very fulsome tradition in our country of of, of communal norms that are upheld by law. And if you look at the polls, there's a certain communal consensus about all of this that we could use and put into this larger legal framework and use that as a way to understand this rather than the rights-based framework, which seems to be a downward spiral into chaos, frankly, on the issue of guns in particular. Well, Laura, I want to thank you so much. Uh, the book that we've been talking about is The People and Their Peace, Legal Culture and the Transformation of Inequality in the Post-Revolutionary South, published by North Carolina University of North Carolina Press, and we'll have a link to it in the show notes. Laura, thank you so much for coming in to talk about this great book. Thank you for inviting me. This has been so much fun. I really appreciate it. <laughs>